HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. I mean, it changes by the day. It's like, I'll be completely transparent. It's like, there are peaks and valleys. There are moments in which I'm just like super depressed and I have PB&J for dinner. And then there are times in which I've been motivated more than ever. And I've, yes, I've done like the sourdough starter and I made sourdough and I'm making, I'm making my second round of like pizza and a lot of baking and a lot of roast chickens. And I've been baking challah for the first time every Friday for Shabbat, um, kind of consecutively almost for this entire time in quarantine. Today, we're spending more time than ever in our own kitchens. Gone are the days when you could shop for dinner ingredients daily, regularly meet your friends at a restaurant, or pick up takeout on your way home from work. Everyone's habits are changing, and cooking has become a much larger part of all of our lives. While we're witnessing an explosion of quarantine-friendly food trends, many are also experiencing fatigue from all that time spent in the kitchen. On today's episode of Meet and 3, we'll explore a few ways to introduce greater joy into your culinary routines. We're talking about how to master the quarantine and combine food with an outdoor adventure. Plus, we'll learn how food media is keeping up with the demand to produce more recipes than ever before. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and three. One unusual symptom of COVID-19 has given many people a new appreciation for the pleasure they derive from cooking and eating. Thousands say they first suspected they were sick upon losing their senses of taste and smell. Some people are incredibly lucky that these are the only symptoms of COVID-19 they ever have. My friend had given me a delicious fluke, and I decided that I'd have it with some marinara sauce for dinner and some vegetables. I cooked the fish, I put the sauce on, I sat down to eat it, I presented it beautifully, and I was so disappointed when I bit in and it literally had no flavor. 
On a recent episode of Buenlamon Radio, hosts Mariana Velasquez and Diego Senor gathered stories from their friends in New York's culinary scene. The senses of taste and smell aren't just pleasure receptors for them. They're professional tools and the basis of their passion for cooking. My name is Alison Attenborough. I'm a food stylist, prop stylist, and I live in Manhattan, New York. My name is Bretton Scott. I am a freelance food stylist, chef, private chef, cook, and I live in Brooklyn, New York, and Fort Greene. After a couple days of having no taste, I started to freak out, obviously, and I'm a cook, and this is how I make my money. What I realized first, I was like, okay, well, let's focus on texture, right? So lots of crunchy things. I love texture anyway in my food. I love putting breadcrumbs on nearly everything. So I thought, well, let's just focus on that. The most important thing is that I, I loved ice cream, that creaminess, the texture of the softness. So here I thought I was going to lose weight, and I started eating a pint of ice cream every night because it was my, <laughs> I really could truly enjoy uh, the creamy factor of it. While Breton found that his loss of taste made him gravitate towards familiarity, Allison was hit by an unusual craving. I had cravings for red meat, and I wanted really rare red meat, and that was something I could really taste, and I couldn't understand why I suddenly wanted meat, because I don't generally eat a lot of meat, but it's all I could think about. After a week or two, Breton and Allison's senses of taste and smell came back but they were left with a newfound understanding and appreciation of how they experience flavor and cravings. What I realized is that the only things that tasted good to me were very acidic foods or very tart foods. So I was drinking cherry juice. I had some unsweetened cranberry juice. I was having the spicy ginger um, juice. And then I was also uh, eating just broths and soups that I made incredibly spicy. The way it impacted me is I just followed my natural body telling me what I wanted to drink and eat. I went to a wine event uh, for the Bordeaux Association. This was about six months ago. And the head of the Bordeaux Wine Association said that in, fr- in their tests in south of France that they concluded that 70% of taste was due to texture. 70%. That seemed like a lot to me. And I had said this for the last, I don't know, six months. I kept saying, oh, I went to this Bordeaux event and 70% of taste is texture. I will say that that's false, that it's probably more like 40%. And yes, there is a lot of texture within taste. But let me tell you, (laughs) losing my sense of taste, I'm like, no, 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 no. They work in unison. They work together. They're symbiotic. And the major lesson is I'm learning (laughs) to just enjoy anything that I can taste and to taste it slowly and to just enjoy it. To hear more about how the loss of taste and smell impacted food professionals in New York, listen to episode 40 of Buen Lamon Radio. In our next story, we aim to excite your taste buds with some tips for perfecting your cocktails during quarantine. Dylan Hoyer talks with award-winning New York City bar owner and the host of HRN's The Speakeasy, Souther Tea. When I called Souther, he was at his East Village bar, Amor y Amargo. Perhaps due to a mix of nostalgia, history, and accessibility, he knew exactly what cocktail recipe he wanted to talk me through. Today I'm going to make for you a old-fashioned cocktail. I've been making a lot of these during the quarantine because it requires nothing that's perishable. Um, plus, it's the progenitor of all cocktails. Um, we first see it in print 
in the Balance and Columbian Repository of 1806 that stated a cocktail is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. Souther's Old Fashioned is a kind of icon in New York City's cocktail scene. Robert Simonson, the New York Times spirits writer and the author of a book entirely dedicated to old fashions, claims Amori Amargo serves his favorite one in Manhattan. Lucky for us, Souther was willing to show us how it's done. I'm going to put into my three and a half ounce uh, rocks glass. A single rocks glass is better for an old fashioned than a double rocks glass. And we'll get to why that is in a second. I'm going to put just a scant eighth of an ounce of heavy syrup. So it's a two to one, two, two parts sugar to one part uh, water. Uh, I use Demerara here at the bar, so it's got this richness, almost like a ice, almost like a sweet tea flavor. I'm going to add one dash of Angostura bitters, uh, as well as one dash of orange bitters. Now, those are just things that I have on hand uh, here at the bar. At home, I definitely have Angostura, and I recommend that you do as well. Um, I don't think any cocktail is complete without some bitters. They're the they're the seasoning that holds the, the you know the soup of your cocktail together. Um, so a dash of each orange and Angostura bitters, then two ounces of 80 proof spirit, Old Overholt Rye Whiskey. It's the longest continuously produced rye whiskey in the world, but any spirit will do, as the definition uh, showed us, right? Sugar, water, spirits, bitters. Uh, then I'm just going to put in three one-by-one one cubes of ice, which will really crowd this small glass, and give it a very gentle stir. I'm not looking to dilute or chill. I'm just looking to combine these ingredients. Now, currently, I have no citrus, but if I did, uh, a nice uh, twist of lemon over the top of this drink will change everything. So it's very classically made and, and beautiful and simple. Uh, you see how quickly I made that, and um, I'll, I'll enjoy it. It seems broken down into a science, requiring precise measurements and a prescribed process. But cocktail making is above all an art, with plenty of room for creativity. What I want to impress upon you, the listener, is this drink can be made again with any spirit, any sugar. So don't don't fool yourself into thinking there's only sugar, right? You've got sugar, brown sugar, demerara sugar, you've got uh, maple syrup, pomegranate molasses, uh, you can make a ginger syrup. Any sweetening agent is your sugar. And then any spirit. If you want to make a tequila old-fashioned, maybe try agave syrup. If you want to make uh, a bourbon old-fashioned, maybe some maple syrup. Things that you have on hand, especially during these times, are, are going to come in really handy for you. If you're new to cocktail making and are feeling a little intimidated, Souther suggests a general formula that balances rule following with experimentation. If you want sort of a rule of thumb, uh, one and a half ounces of what we call standard proof spirits, which is 80 proof, uh, up against three quarters of an ounce of acid, so citrus or maybe even a, a shrub, you know, a vinegar uh, that you've made out of uh, fruit or even you know, peppers or what have you, cucumbers, um, and then uh, Follow that up with half an ounce of your sweetening agent. Again, that's your, sh your sugar syrup, maple syrup, pomegranate syrup. Uh, that's kind of a base sour recipe that'll pretty much never go wrong. So one and a half ounces of spirit, three quarters of an ounce of your citrus slash acid, uh, and then half an ounce of uh, sweetener, all in your mixing tin. Give it a good vigorous shake and strain it either uh, up in a cocktail glass or over ice, and you'll, you'll kind of be in a no-fail situation. While you're learning, Souther insists there's no need to limit your imagination to traditional ingredients. You may find the flavors you love best in unexpected places. Reach for those jars of jam. You know, if you if you like uh, apricot jam on your toast in the morning, the same formula with the 
maybe bourbon, that apricot jam, and maybe some lemon juice, uh, the apricot jam being your sweetening agent, shake it vigorously and strain it uh, into a cocktail glass. It'll be delightful. Souther has been branching out while he's stuck at home, too. He now hosts an Instagram video series he calls Pantry Raid Cocktails that features whatever ingredients he can find in his fridge, freezer, and kitchen cabinets, be it ice cream, peanut butter, or even chipotle puree. I think the most unusual one that I did, I called the Tide Down, T-A-I-D, down, uh, sort of a riff on the Mai Tai, um, but I used uh, rye whiskey instead of rum, um, and then I added in uh, oat milk along with just a couple of drops of sesame oil and a scoop of peanut butter um, along with the citrus and a little bit of curacao. Another way for New Yorkers to consume cocktails in quarantine is to pick them up or have them delivered. New York, along with the majority of U.S. states, has relaxed liquor laws as a way to help bars and restaurants increase their revenue. Souther is currently doing pickup at Amori Amargo on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evenings, as well as limited delivery on his scooter. He hopes that new regulations won't end with stay-at-home orders. The future of cocktail delivery, or bottled cocktails at least, off-premise sales is what this is called. You know, a liquor store sells you off-premise, a bar sells you on-premise. So the future of off-premise, I hope, is bright. Um, With the coming restrictions that will be uh, enforced upon bars and restaurants on reopening, uh, we're going to be down to less than 50% capacity. For instance, my bar, which normally houses around 30 people, but because its square footage is so small, uh, I expect to be told I'm only allowed eight people at a time. So that's, you know, considerably less than 50%. Um, I'm hopeful uh, that the government will allow us to continue selling off-premise so that we can kind of make up for some of that margin. Souther wouldn't mind taking the lead from the only city in the U.S. that had relaxed open container laws before the pandemic. I lived in New Orleans for a long time, and to-go cocktails have been a thing there for uh, forever. Um, I don't see them as a problem, uh, especially large format. No one's, uh, I don't think anyone's thinking to themselves, I'm going to grab a liter of cocktails and go drink them in the park. I think they're thinking, I'm going to grab a liter, that's 10 cocktails, they're going to go home and drink them over the course of the week. So I'm hopeful that it stays in place for at least a while. I would, I would like to see it for two years. For the time being, you can try one of Souther's famous old fashions, if you swing by Amori Amargo in the East Village, take a look on their website for their pickup hours and instructions. Plus, follow Souther at Creative Drunk on Instagram for more pantry raid cocktail inspiration, as well as the opportunity to ask him questions and support his staff. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. 
Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. As stay-at-home orders extend in the wake of coronavirus, exploring the outdoors has become an integral part of managing the monotony of quarantine life. For those fortunate enough to live near open spaces, a walk through the woods can provide not only a source of solace and joy, but perhaps even dinner. Next up, we join Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears, as he dives into the world of foraging with expert Maureen Gordon. Together, they explored the medicinal and culinary value of wild foods in the time of COVID-19. How we stay healthy in this time is of the utmost importance, not just for each of us individually, but as a species. We can look to lots of healthy foods and wild foods to help us stay healthy. I've talked a lot about the value of real food and probiotics on this show before, but it's only more recently that I've started to look into the woods and the sea for foods I can forage. In traditional medicine or in, you know, eating healthier and foraging or however you want to kind of package that, there is a thing about just keeping your body healthy in general. It's valuable for people to understand, especially in places like we are in the Northeast, that there are a lot of wild plants, uh, wild mushrooms, sea creatures, things like that, that we can have access to that are in fact really good for you, both from a nutritional standpoint or from a medicinal standpoint, like the, the things that you're doing. I mean, I, you know, I follow you on Instagram and we've gone out foraging together. We have powerful medicines here in New England and we have powerful food that act just the same and we have low toxicity to other cells, unlike other things. And I just see that there's a big need uh, for stepping back uh, to reconnect with the land and uh, to, to better our health. I think we just kind of need to step back a little bit. And how do we eat preventively? How do, how do we have food, healthy food, the least processed food, the most whole foods, um, correct a lot of this stuff? You know, can you talk for a second about how to identify or what things to look out for if you are going to start foraging some of these edible plants? I tend to look for preserves that are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres, are very far from manufacturing, have no street runoff. And if there's street runoff, you just kind of want to even move north of it and not move south of it. As a safety precaution and as my own health, I would not eat anything coming out of the ground somewhere near where there's major manufacturing over the last hundred years. Yep. So, so, and then the same thing kind of transgresses into water. Same thing. So if you have natural ponds that were never dumping zones or they didn't have halfway up the river where they made, you know, copper bells or brass belts or ships and, you know, we're dumping this stuff into the rivers, same thing. I feel like it's as interesting and fun and a you know good mental exercise and practice just to identify stuff 
There are right. hundreds of varieties and colors and shapes and sizes. And, you know, I like collecting them and I bring them home and then I look at them and I research them and try and figure out what they are. And then right. I throw them out. If people are going to go out in the woods and they're going to eat and they're going to forage and they're going to research and there's loads of research you can do on them. I always say be 110% sure of what you're eating, number one. Number two is know the poisons. You need to know your poisonous stuff before you put anything in your mouth with regards to mushrooms. You know, that you need to be able to identify the ones that will kill you. I tell people to stay away from gilled mushrooms from the get-go until you have five good years of of foraging for polypores that are edible or medicinal or that won't kill you and you're comfortable. Then I'll, you know, then come back to me and I'll tell you how to then research the gilled stuff. I encourage everyone to check out uh, Maureen's Instagram. It's food, forage, and fodder. You can learn a great deal by looking at that. And, you know, while you're stuck at home, go for a walk. Take a look. Look around you. Look at the plants and see if you can identify them. If you'd like to learn more about foraging wild foods, specifically in the Northeast, listen to episode 177 of Feast Your Ears. For our final story, Will Hartman reports on the growth of Instagram food during the current pandemic. For many of us, the kitchen has become a new focal point in our evolving home-based lives. And it feels like everyone is showing off their culinary endeavors on social media, especially via Instagram. My Instagram feed is chock full of food photos posted by friends, family, and influencers alike. I wanted to know if people were as busy cooking as social media would have me believe. Jake Cohen is the editorial director of The Feed Feed, an online community of people who love to cook. He also hosts The Feed Feed podcast on HRN and is an authority on food posts. Food media has never been busier because everyone is at home and they are, for a lot of people, like they're cooking three meals a day for the first time ever for themselves. Um, So you can imagine that like the need for recipes or just kind of even just simple techniques is at its highest it's been in my history in food media. Whether it's being shared online or not, the fact remains. Being stuck at home means more and more snacking and time spent in the kitchen. While for some, cooking can seem like a chore, Many people are seeing this quarantine as an opportunity to grow their culinary platforms. Jake sees a shift in the influencer model where the personality of those on screen matters as much as the content they're producing. People want someone that's going to kind of work for them and provide value. But at the same time, we've like completely moved away from the concept of like the first wave of influencer, even like the first wave of like YouTube influencer. Instagram users are interacting more with food celebrities like Jake and, in general, interacting more with the food they eat. Posting food on Instagram has tried to replace the undeniable connections formed when sharing a meal with people. I spoke with Julianne Simpson of How to Be Broke in New York, a guide to not only surviving in New York City, but thriving on a tight budget. I do agree that Instagram makes it easier to share. And I think that if you see so many people sharing their recipes that look really good, you will also want to share what you've made because maybe you're really proud of it. Maybe it was a really hard recipe and it feels good to be able to share that. During the pandemic, the uses for Instagram have been put under a microscope. What used to be a platform for showing what you were doing in isolated moments has transformed into a constant vlog for its millions and millions of users. 
we lived in a society that was kind of based on like the millennial concept of FOMO. Um, and that was down to like what you wore to where, what restaurants you ate at, to where you went on vacation, what you did, what workout classes you did. They were all kind of activity based. And that was the concept of FOMO. Now that everyone's home, now that everyone can't be interacting with each other, the only FOMO is that you see all of your friends baking banana bread. And then all of a sudden, this is something that you can get in on easily. To read all of Jake's recipes, go to thefeedfeed.com. To see all of Julianne's tips on living in New York on a budget, follow her at How to Be Broke in New York. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Big thanks this week to Natasha Kimmel, Harry Rosenblum, and Will Hartman. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet in Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.